Welcome to FRDH Podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The past is prologue to the future, and the future eventually becomes the present. I made this documentary during the 2004 presidential election. Listen closely, and you will hear foreshadowings of this year's campaign. Immigration. Hatred of the Republican establishment by its rank and file. The failure of the Iraq War. And also deep historical context for how America got this way. You will also hear some lovely music I recorded at the scene. The South, where the past is never dead. It isn't even the past. To truly understand America, you have to know the mind of the South. If you want to learn about the mind of the South, it's best to get in your car and take a little drive, but not along the interstates. It's easy to miss the South if you do. We're going to start off with one of our old songs way back from years ago. Don't let me cross over love's cheating I'm tempting my dog to steal you away. The places where the old white southern culture still thrives are not part of interstate America, with its on-ramp, off-ramp culture of gas stations, chain motels, and strip malls. If you're scooting west through the Florida Panhandle on Interstate 10, you're likely to bypass Mariana, a spit in a holler from the Alabama and Georgia lines. But just a mile or so north of the interstate, on old U.S. Highway 90, is a different world. Arrowhead Campground, out by a little lake, is full of RVs. It's Friday night on July 4th weekend, and Al and Retha Webb are entertaining the folks. On the concrete dance floor, people kick off their shoes and barefoot around to the gentle bluegrass swing. The spill of light from the bandstand illuminates faces straight out of Dorothea Lang or Walker Evans' photos. The South, as a region and a culture, presents questions even to those born into it and who study it, like the author of The Most Southern Place on Earth, University of Georgia professor of history, James Cobb. You know, if you look today at socioeconomic, demographic data, the statistical convergence of the South with the rest of the country is quite striking. Yet, most people who come into the South for the first time immediately sense that there is something different about the South still. This sort of immediate perception of the South as a different place from the rest of the United States. That difference takes some time to absorb. In part, it can be identified in its contradictions, according to historian Cobb. You know, the South is given the reputation for being the most hospitable part of the country, but it's also the most homicidal by far. Both those things are, are there, and uh, that's one of the things that makes the South so intriguing. James Cobb's work focuses on Southern identity. When he uses the term the South, he isn't referring to just a geographical region. He's referring to a particular group in the South, white Southerners. The argument is that we've been set apart from the rest of the nation by the fact that we represent so clearly what's supposed to be the essence of the nation. 
For an illustration of what Cobb is talking about, you can drive about a mile down Highway 90 from the Arrowhead campground to the Caravan Restaurant, a cinder block building which is the current meeting place of the Mariana Coffee Club. Every weekday morning for 42 years, the club has got together to gossip, talk politics, and play a numbers game for who picks up the check. All right, let's get down to the game now. The rules are perfectly impossible for a first-time visitor to understand. Now try to mark a number he does not have. I'm trying. No, but the game's over now. Game's so over. You just bought the coffee. Seven. Oh, lucky seven. That's your prize. You're a part of history now. And you don't have to buy the coffee because your host picks up the check the first time. And what is in the brown bag? The prize was a bottle of wine. But as Mariana is in a dry county, the wine had no alcohol in it. The white southern attitudes on display at first meet a northerner's expectations. Local car dealer Bill Hopkins has a bit of needle for a Yankee public radio reporter. I grew up on the farm in South Georgia, and I know what horse manure and cow manure smells like. And every time I turn to public radio, it smells like horse manure or cow manure. You don't trust a word that comes out of our mouths? I don't do what? Trust a word that comes out of our mouths. Yeah, I trust it to be wrong. This is America, not what goes on in the rest of the country like the colleges, the universities, the Democrat, Democrat, the Democratic Party. It's not America? Why do you say it's not America? Well, I mean, but they're Americans. Top dog at the breakfast table is Dick Hinson, 78, who rescues his guest from Bill Hopkins's attentions and invites some of the older members of the group to his end of the table to talk about their changing world and worldview. You're talking about for the, the, the pure of the old South? That is getting to be tremendously hard to find in that with good transportation and this sort of thing, you don't find it from a standpoint of being isolated physically. I think the best place you could find it would be in a place like this, where men from the same types of background who appreciate what you're talking about, choose to band together. Real political influence is gathered in this band, and Tommy Granger, an elder of the First Baptist Church, knows it. i tell you another thing. There's not a single politician within a 100-mile radius that runs for a political office that don't come to this group first. That's right. That's true. They all come here. Every politician wants their hands laid on them by the coffee club. <laughs> The attitudes to national political parties in this part of the country were forged in the Civil War and its aftermath, explains Dick Hinson. I remember, as a child, members of my family, who back then were very, very uh, advanced in age, who lived through the days of Reconstruction. And uh, this particular county, Jackson County, from 1869 to 1871 holds the record as the most violent county in the South. There were 169 murders here in this little county in two years, all unsolved, which 
tells you how people feel about being occupied by carpetbaggers and Union soldiers. Occupation. Reconstruction. These are words associated with the Republican Party. But in recent decades, these gentlemen's view of the party of Lincoln have changed. I'm a Democrat. These other, these other guys. I changed. The other guys, they just changed over and went to Republican, you know. But uh, we probably should accurately all be listed as independents. Because I don't think any of us blindly follow a party line. But Ms. Wright. Well, uh, my daddy said that when uh, Kennedy ran, people were saying, oh, he's a Catholic. My daddy said he didn't care if he was a GD Israelite, he'd vote for him because he's a Democrat. <laughs> the coffee club's members' views are not unique. Republicans were a rare species all over the South until comparatively recently. I always say I was uh, 18 years old before I ever saw someone whom I knew to be a Republican. University of Georgia historian James Cobb. Shortly after my 18th birthday, uh, I found the majority of uh, whites in Georgia were voting for Republican presidential candidates. Today, that vote is the solid foundation for Republican national success, according to Merle Black, political science professor at Emory University. We define the South as the 11 states of the old Confederacy, from Virginia in the east and Texas and Arkansas in the west. Those states now, roughly 85 million population, about 30 percent of America, provides 153 electoral college votes. If a candidate sweeps the entire South, as George Bush did four years ago and as he hopes to do uh, this time, then he would only need 30 percent of the remaining electoral college vote in the country, less than a third. If a Democratic candidate can't win any Southern state, then you can win, but you have to get 70 percent of the remaining electoral college vote. White Southerners began their move away from the Democratic Party in 1948 when the mayor of Minneapolis, Hubert Humphrey, speaking at the Democratic Convention, brought the issue of civil rights for African Americans front and center into political life. To those who say that this civil rights program is an infringement on states' rights, I say this, the time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadows of states' rights and to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. Hubert Humphrey's speech to the Democratic Convention prompted a walkout of Southern senators. They formed the state's rights party, better known as the Dixiecrats, led by South Carolina's Strom Thurmond. But I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our spring pools, into our homes, and into our churches. The Dixiecrats didn't last, but slowly, white Southerners began to think the unthinkable, that they would vote for the party of Lincoln, and in the case of Thurmond, run for election under its banner, according to political scientist Merle Black. The first great white switch occurred in 1964, when the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater as their presidential candidate, only months after Goldwater had voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the Republican Party was no longer the party of Lincoln, it was now the party of Barry Goldwater. And since 1964 in presidential contests in the South, more Southerners, more whites, have voted for the Republican than the Democratic Party candidate. Richard Nixon's Southern strategy continued the courtship of white voters. 
Merle Black, says that began to yield lasting results when Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1980. Reagan realigned the white Southerners who think of themselves as conservatives. were only 40 percent Republican in 1980. By 1988, they were 60 percent Republican. Today, they're about 75 percent Republican. It's, it's very hard to find conservative Democrats left among white voters in the South. The reason for Reagan's galvanic effect on Southern whites went beyond his ability to amiably deliver a speech. On June 21, 1964, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner were murdered near Philadelphia, Mississippi. The trio had been registering black voters in the area. Their martyrdom became a sacred moment of the civil rights struggle. Yet a mere 16 years later, of all the places in America, candidate Reagan chose a fairgrounds just outside Philadelphia, Mississippi, as the place to make his first major campaign speech. Historian James Cobb. In 1980, when Ronald Reagan, who's clearly going after the Southern white vote in a big way, opens his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, talking about restoring state rights, he doesn't have to say uh, this means that we're through giving stuff to black people and putting black people over white people. I mean, that's implicit but clear in what he's really saying. There's another reason white Southerners followed Ronald Reagan, his tax-cutting, anti-big government policies. That's surprising because Southerners had been great supporters of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, which brought modern infrastructure to a region that remained deliberately impoverished by lingering Reconstruction policies. Even among some whites who vote Republican today, the name Roosevelt is still revered. There's a simple explanation for the conundrum of support for both the New Deal and anti-big government sentiment, Merle Black. The New Deal was more popular in the South than probably any other part of the country. Part of that was that economic benefits were coming into the South in the way of programs and then direct services and then Social Security begins and all of that. But the Southerners white Southerners, black Southerners, were not paying any taxes at that time. You know, they were too poor to pay taxes. I grew up in a, in a congressional district in northeast Texas, and someone did an estimate one time of how many people in the district paid income taxes in the 1930s. And it was about two-thirds of one percent. So, so the New Deal for these Southern whites is literally something for nothing. Well, they love that. That's fine, you know. <laughs> but now it's not that. This working class is being taxed, and that affects the attitudes that they have toward the federal government. They're not bothered very much by inequalities. On an unseasonably cool midsummer Saturday at Zion Farms, just outside Pontotoc, Mississippi, a small crowd is gathered to celebrate southernness and talk politics. Zion is a small working farm specializing in organic, free-range meat and poultry, some of which is slowly sizzling over hot coals to feed the crowd, which is gathered for a rally of the Constitution Party, the latest in a line of political groups based on the old southern battle cry of states' rights. Okay, we're going to continue with a song that came to the South from Scotland way back in the 1700s. And uh, this one's called Shady Grove. We're going to do it the old-fashioned style, which is in a minor key.
Southern pride is on display here. Confederate flags wave proudly. Michael Hill, founder of an organization called the League of the South, a cultural group of academics dedicated to keeping alive the dream of Southern independence, is the featured speaker today. The thing that has always distinguished Southerners politically and culturally more is this idea that mankind is not perfectible, there will never be a utopian society, that the best we can do is simply cope with the situation that we find ourselves in. We can't change human nature, and we can't create a perfect world. And there's no social movement, there's no government that can do this. And Southerners realize the limits of human endeavor, I think, better than other people do. And the reason for that, according to Hill, is simple. Among Americans, we're the only people that's ever suffered a major defeat in a war, have been conquered, occupied, had our farms and lands destroyed. And I think collectively we Southerners have a memory, a historical memory that sets us apart. He plans to remind those attending the Constitution Party rally that they are the true America. Southerners, from a political standpoint, are probably the rock that holds things in place. If you look back uh, through American history, the principles upon which the country was founded were largely Southern principles. A lot of the other sections of the country, for one reason or another, have drifted away from those. Among those in attendance are Timothy and Jessica Milry. The Milrys are on the verge of big change in their lives. They're about to go abroad as Christian missionaries. If I were to give you a checklist, one through three, how you identify yourself, Southern American Christian, which would you check first? Christian. Which would you check? Southern, Southern. American. Yeah. Christ first, then we're Southerners, then we're Americans. Southern Americans was just hyphenated, you know. <laughs> you know, you know. That's how we would identify ourselves. Are you aware of the power of the South as a region in shaping the political destiny? Oh, oh definitely. The South is not something just, we're just not a bunch of country bumpkins. You know, we have, a, we have some intellectuals here too, you know. Yes, we're still a little, I guess, bit about the fact that we were forced to give up our, our fortunes and our, our lands and all because of the, we lost the war. But we still, we want, we want, so many people have had the freedom that we enjoy, we've always enjoyed. We want to maintain that freedom. That's, and as it's slowly being eroded by the policies that come from the, the Washington and from the Northeast, they push their policies and their, and their, and their programs down our throats with, the, with the, destroying the Constitution. We see our last bastion of, of, uh, of liberty, the Constitution, being destroyed and shredded each and every day. Children at their feet, chickens in the yard, a tall, lanky man standing on the porch of a rough-hewn wooden house, talking politics. It's a scene from another time. But this get-together is not some retro bit of folkloric culture. In a nation that seems to have no sense of the past, white Southerners are wedded to history. This reverence for and constant reference to history makes these folks natural conservatives, and this unshakable allegiance to the past makes white Southerners a political bloc to be reckoned with. To truly know the mind of the South, you have to look north, across the Atlantic, to what is now Northern Ireland, according to Michael Hill. Within the 
Celtic world, if we can describe it as that, and, and I do think the South is part of that. You've always had this penchant for breaking off and seceding from something, and you get these smaller and smaller little groups. Southerners and Scots and Irish and Welsh are all very contentious people. And if there's some disagreement, we'll go our own way and form our own thing. The 12th of July in Belfast, and Northern Ireland's Protestants are on the march. Like their cousins over the sea, there are people wedded to their history. And every year, on July 12th, they celebrate the Battle of the Boyne, their great victory over Ireland's Catholics a mere 314 years ago. These folks are the descendants of Gaelic-speaking Scots, transplanted the 40 or so miles over the water to Northern Ireland, Ulster, in the 17th century. The American South was overwhelmingly settled by these Ulster Scots, or Scotch-Irish, during the 18th and early 19th centuries. When you spend time in Ireland's north, the connections to the American South are obvious, most particularly in the fractured nature of the Protestant religion. Just as in the South, there are a bewildering number of Protestant denominations in Northern Ireland. There are some streets in Belfast where, in the space of a few hundred yards, there are more than half a dozen different kinds of Protestant churches, according to Northern Ireland historian Clifford Smith. Apostolic, Elam, Congregational, Baptist, Presbyterian, you're immediately confronted with the fact that uh, in Northern Ireland Protestant society is a divided or a fractured society. At the core of all of these divisions within the Protestant denominations lies this central theme of the right of the individual to make up their own mind on, on these issues. And of course, out of that, you can extrapolate another very, very important point, and that is that it was these churches with this view of the right of, of private opinion that give birth to a particular form of democracy that we have in Great Britain and in the United States. The Scotch-Irish have played an important role in American political life. One in four American presidents traces his roots to this tiny corner of Ireland, from Andrew Jackson to Bill Clinton. Ulster Protestant culture shaped white Southern culture. It provided the roots music that evolved into bluegrass and country. The words we use to describe white Southerners trace back there as well. The derogatory term cracker is derived from the Gaelic crack, meaning lively conversation. There are other, less pleasant aspects of their culture, which the immigrants brought with them to the South, says Clifford Smith. They can become very contentious and stubborn people, and this is highlighted in, for example, the hillbillies, the rivalries between these clans who feud down through the generations. You mean the Hatfields and, and McCoys? That kind of thing. And it was as if it was in their DNA. They took not only the love for freedom, but also the sectarianism or, or the racism the stubbornness to the point where it becomes a, almost a form of paranoia. The degree to which Northern Ireland's history, with its virulent anti-Catholicism, still has an impact on the U.S. is remarkable. As recently as 1960, Democratic candidate John F. Kennedy had to publicly assure white Southerners that he was not part of a papal plot to take over the United States. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute when no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act. 
and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. That people almost two centuries away from their roots, fully assimilated, should not have evolved beyond this prejudice is remarkable, until you consider that the motto of Northern Ireland's Protestants is no surrender, a phrase coined way back in 1689 when Protestants were besieged by Catholics in Derry. This notion of no surrender has come down through the generations as a kind of motto or axiom by which the Ulster Protestant should live. And it really says that even though the whole world is against us, we don't actually give in. The no surrender creed survives in the ethos of white Southerners, according to historian James Cobb. Oh yeah, I think it manifests itself economically. I mean, the rise of the Sun Belt and the relative economic dynamism of the South compared to... Uh, other parts of the country, the, the old Rust Belt, there is a very real sense that, uh, you know, we had another go at Gettysburg and we made it this time. This uncompromising quality of white Southern political behavior may actually lead to a change in the Republican Party's fortunes, says Alan Abramowitz, political science professor at Emory University. The uh, increasing influence of Southern conservatives within the Republican Party at the national level is having a sort of boomerang effect to some extent outside the South. The perception of the Republican Party is increasingly conservative and dominated by, or at least influenced strongly by the religious right, is hurting the Republican Party where moderate Republicans and independents are turned off by this. And so we're seeing states like Connecticut and New Jersey and Illinois, which used to be very competitive, have been trending Democratic, at least in presidential elections. But in this election year, a unique contemporary event is affecting the white Southern electorate, the war in Iraq. The more senior members of the coffee club of Mariana, Florida, Dick Hinson and Tommy Granger, cite the war as the reason they are seriously thinking of voting for a Democratic presidential candidate for the first time in 40 years. I find myself now leaning toward the people who now represent the Democratic Party. In other words, as the TV ads go, I'm not satisfied with the direction that the country is going in, especially now with the way things have developed. Um, Specifically in Iraq or just generally with the administration policy? With Iraq. I don't think we had the proper basis to go to war when we did. And I think we were misled. I'm glad uh, Saddam is out, but we have lost a lot of friends by what is considered to be and maybe may have been an arrogant move. Okay, I agree with everything he said. I go one step further. I wouldn't vote for a bush for dog catcher. Perhaps not in this election, but over the long term. The Republican Party may not be able to confidently go into presidential elections with the South's electoral votes in its pockets, according to political science professor Alan Abramowitz. Immigration is becoming an important factor in many parts of the South. Migration is going to continue to be a major influence. There's not a whole lot more room, I think, for Republican gains there. In the long run, at least, I think one of the most important determinants of the direction of Southern politics is going to be which way the migrants go. In Florida, these demographic changes are already staring the Republican Party in the face. 
It's the 4th of July in Tallahassee, Florida, and the city's official party in Tom Brown Park is underway. Strewn between two bandstands across freshly mown acres of rough grass is a perfect picture of the New South. All races and social types mingling in heat and humidity that liquefy the spine. Middle-aged tattooed ladies boogie like it's Woodstock. Interracial lesbian couples stroll, holding hands. There are new Americans from points east and south, and old Americans of Northern European and African descent. Nary a Confederate flag is waving, although a few, surprisingly few, appear on faded old t-shirts and a couple of cowboy hats. Uncle Sam is present. In the middle of the large open lawn is a fellow dressed up as America's favorite uncle, albeit without the white whiskers. Ion Sancho, supervisor of elections for Leon County, is working this holiday, doing his bit, registering voters. The scenes played out in Tallahassee after the presidential elections in 2000 have caused many different reactions among locals, ranging from embarrassment to a determination to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's why Sancho is working the crowd. <laughs> registering voters, what a good idea. What a, you know? How can you how can you beat registering to vote on the nation's birthday? I tell you what. The centerpiece of the party in the park is the swearing-in of new citizens. Good afternoon. On behalf of the city of Tallahassee, we hope you enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Happy July the Fourth, and uh, don't worry about nothing. We're out here. We're going to work with you. Thank you. Well, this is one of the uh, this is one of the long-standing traditions of Celebrate America. It's one of my favorite favorite parts of this. You guys live in a country that affords you the opportunity to do anything you want to. America rocks. Let me hear it. I said the boss from Pakistan. Sarujdan Raj from Trinidad and Tobago. You raise your right hand. This is Bailey Jinwei from China. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity I pledge allegiance to any foreign lands for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And before the new Americans can accept the congratulations of their families and friends, Ion Sancho makes sure they get on no his electoral rolls. If you choose no party affiliation, you may not vote in the partisan primaries. Uh, to vote in a partisan primary under Florida law, you need to be affiliated with a party. These new Americans may change the voting patterns of the South, but it will probably be many generations before they change the mind of the South. Old ways of thinking cling to white Southerners like Spanish moss clings to the South's old oak trees. So much on the outside is different in the South since 1964. But inside, so much is the same. University of Georgia historian James Cobb. Race is there everywhere you turn around. I mean, there are, yes, there's this anti-big government thing. Well, anti-big government means programs that are going to benefit black people at the expense of white people. 
No one knows the mind of white Southerners like black Southerners, a fact attested to in literature and conversation with just folks, joined at the hip throughout the region's history, shackled together for much of that time, dwelling in separate wings of their father's house. People make these inspiring speeches about how white Southerners and black Southerners have shared a past, yes, but they've shared it in very different ways. And, and basically the, the ups for white Southerners were downs for black Southerners and vice versa. And of course, this link in opposition to one another is reflected in politics. Political scientist Merle Black. When we talk about the South, obviously a huge split between white Southerners and black Southerners. Uh, blacks are overwhelmingly democratic, have been since the 1960s, and I think will remain so as, as far as we can see in the future. And this block of votes is not small. African Americans who left the South in droves to escape segregation in the early part of the 20th century spent the last decade of that century moving home in their millions. The South had 3.5 million more black residents in 2000 than it did in 1990. In some southern states, the African-American vote is as crucial to presidential politics as the white southern vote, if the votes are counted. The Florida recount of 2004 gave the world the indelible phrase, hanging chads. But there was more to the story than counting dimpled ballots in Palm Beach County. In a report published in 2001, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights noted that widespread disenfranchisement of African Americans was the decisive factor in Al Gore losing the state. The Civil Rights Commission concluded, quote, African American voters were at least 10 times more likely to have their ballots rejected than other voters, and that 83 of the 100 precincts with the most disqualified ballots had black majorities, end quote. Tom Brown Park wasn't the only place in Tallahassee on July 4th where voter registration was going on. Earlier in the day, at Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church on the south side of the tracks that divide Florida's state capital physically and racially, people were being signed onto the rolls. Well, let me get a half some tea ballot. Just tell yeah, I'm going to give, I'm gonna give you I this go ahead and, send and here is the telephone number. Anita Davis of the NAACP has a little registration table set up to catch worshipers before Sunday service. Your party affiliation? I don't know if I should go Republican, Democrat. I might go independent this year. No, you won't be able to vote in the primary. <laughs> you go your party. What you been voting? Well, I've been a Democrat. Well, let's put just put your check in there. Okay, is that it? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> He just needed to make sure The pastor of Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church is Reverend Joseph Wright. He says that even at this stage in the nation's history, the South is the region which shapes American society. Race relations have changed in the South, Reverend Wright claims, and for the better, showing the way for the rest of America. Well, the South has always been special. The South led us into the Civil War. <laughs> and uh, it is going to be the South that lead us out. Wright offers a personal example from his work with white clergymen. I guess roughly about maybe seven years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention made a lot of apologetics uh, to the South in reference to dismantling or, uh, or evicting black pastors from their churches in the Deep South around the 1840s. And so they were trying to make some amends to restore the fellowship. But we still have a long way to go with that. 
see, you know, the leaders are recognizing that it's okay for black churches and white churches to worship together. It makes no difference what your theology is, but it makes a lot of difference in what God has invested in all of us as a people. And so, yeah, we do see a dismantling, and it starts in the South. See, and I begin to see that, begin to trickleate all over the country. Still, Wright is not surprised that the last election hinged on a questionable count of African-American votes in a state that was part of the old Confederacy. You got to understand what you're still dealing with here. You're still dealing with old die heart. People refuse to acknowledge that they lost the Civil War. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer is. And... Wright adds, for all the progress, there's still one thing about the South that seems immutable. There's always going to be that, that need, especially in the South, for a certain group of people who want to feel that they are more superior in control, domination of other people. And you find that in the South. That is the defining characteristic of the South, domination, control, you know, superiority versus the inferiority. Aware of the past, which always seems to move in next door, no matter what the change in their neighborhood, the African-American community in Florida is on heightened alert for attempts to block their votes in this election. church this Sunday, Reverend Joseph Wright builds his lengthy sermon to a climax, reminding his congregation that no one can take away their rights. Reverend Wright brings worship to a close with a gentle reminder. If you have not yet registered, please register to vote. Thank you, and to God be the glory. Amen. Go now forevermore. Yes. Uh, in the name of Jesus. Oh, and the people that? of God said amen. Amen. God bless your heart. I know you can't go anywhere. <laughs> Americans, to truly know their country, have to know the mind of the South. Issues brought to the forefront of politics by Southerners, particularly social issues, have tremendous impact on elections. 
Southern conservative criticisms about messianic statism, too much power being concentrated in Washington, resonate north of the Mason-Dixon line as never before. At the same time, Southern-based messianic Christianity flourishes. The arguments about America's past and what it means for America's future are shaped in the South. University of Georgia historian James Cobb suggests this demonstrates what white Southerners have been claiming for centuries. What we're really seeing now is a discovery of the southernness of America rather than the southernization of America. That in fact, America was a lot more southern all along than we were able to recognize. Thank you for listening to FRDH Podcast. Please tell your friends about it. And for more, visit the website at www.goldfarbpod.com. That's www.goldfarbpod.com.